Hello, everyone, and welcome into debate night yet again. I'm Hunter, joined as always by Brody, Silas in the booth. I am back from vacation, and Brody is in a different part of Oregon this week. You're a little farther north, or is it the same part of Oregon? No, we're south. Farther south. We're like, yeah, we're like uh, 40 minutes south of the airport. And where? Portland? I have no idea. Oh, you don't know where you're at. Did you fly from Portland to this place? No, no, no. 40 minute drive. Okay, okay. It's, uh, it's, I think it's, I think it's Estacada. Yeah, that sounds right. That sounds right. It's the nearest city, which whatever is that is. Yeah. Yeah, so the Beaver State Fling Silver Series is going down this weekend. A lot of history with that tournament, but first we got to walk through Portland Open some. And Crazy, we're going to give you, you know, plenty of time to walk through what happened on your your game and all that, Brody. But first we got to just start off. Last Crazy. week on this show, you came on saying, "Why are we playing Blue Lake? Seems very like an easy course." Seems like, yeah. you know, hot round could be 17 under. I don't think I said that. You definitely said that. And then then you came I out and put up it. Do, do we need to go back to last week? That. Silas. Can, I don't think I said didn't that. Didn't say. You said that. You remember it, right? I think I might have said that jokingly. But you said I mean, it. but you said it. You can't. You said it. The words came out of your mouth. I still have yet to have anyone send me the actual clip of me saying it. Okay, well, so, uh, well, now that I know you're mind, looking for it, I'll find it. I, I might not have said it. Regardless, you you know you said it was an easy course, and then you did proceed well, to I go out there. It, it you, is an easy You course. did proceed to go out there and shoot an even par the first round, though. Yeah, I played terrible. Yeah, so walk us through, walk us which, through that first which is, round. Which is, which is even worse. Shooting even par on an easy course is even worse Yeah. Um, than uh, shooting even par on a hard course, but... I guess, you know, again, when, uh, you know, sometimes I say stuff and we don't necessarily have all the time in the world to really dissect exactly what I'm saying, <laughs> but, but my, my point really with Blue Lake was, was more in, in the sense that there's some holes where we're just like, why the heck are we playing this? Yeah. Um, this hole for example uh a a good example of that which i'm sure has gotten lots of talk with how nate sexton and big germ did the commentary uh on hole nine i was shocked okay because there's like 40 people probably in at at portland open that were like non-touring pros right like more of your local pros or just people that were able to get in the tournament so there was a decent amount of like of the bottom of the field. Right. And so when someone asked me like, Hey, what do you think? What percentage, what percentage of the field do you think birdied hole nine? What, what do you think the answer of that was? I have no idea. You know, there's a hundred and I think there was like 105 people. There's like 40 people, 30 people that aren't touring pros playing. What do you think the percentage was of people that birdied hole nine? Uh, we'll go 50. We'll go, no, we'll go 45%. 90%. So like the entire field. I was, I was, I was shocked. I thought like 70. Cause I was like, I'm pretty sure every, 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 anyone in the top 50 birdied that hole. Yeah. And then I was like, I bet like half the people at the bottom birdied it and half did it. 90% of the field birdied it. So when you have, and 
my point was like, and I'll, I'll just run through the course real quick. Okay. Hole, hole one, really hard birdie, but really hard to bogey. Hole two, good hole, because it takes a good shot to birdie, and if you throw a bad tee shot, you can actually bogey that hole. Hole three, good hole. Hole four, not a good hole. 295, pretty standard. Uh, you're either making a two or a three. No real chance of bogeying that hole. Hole four, kind of on the cusp of like a good hole, bad hole. Hole six, 270 feet, Stockheiser, or a straight shot, bad hole. Hole seven, great hole. Hole eight, great hole. Don't really like the drop zone, but good hole. Hole nine, not a good hole. Hole 10, eh. Hole 11, not a good hole. So I'll, I'll stop there because I'm sure people are, are, are over me going through it. But my point was there's just a lot of holes on that course where it's very difficult to get a bogey. Yeah. And you, I think you saw that on the front nine. Now the back nine has a lot of good holes. And I'll say like the hole 18 is pretty easy. But that stretch coming in of like 14, 15, 16, 17 is a really awesome stretch of holes. Um, so I guess when I was saying like this course is too easy, I mean, obviously I shot even par one round and then shot six under another round, which still wasn't that great. I didn't even play that well towards mm-hmm. the uh, back nine. But, uh, you know, I, I made like seven birdies in a row, I think, one of the rounds. And it really didn't feel like I was doing anything special. Yeah. Right? So I think that's my point of where you can kind of just putz around and keep the disc in play out there and shoot a really good score. So how how much harder stroke-wise do you think Glendevere played? See, I thought Glendevere was going to be much harder than it actually played. Yeah. But once once I got through Glendevere, like I played, I feel like Glendevere. I didn't. I mean, obviously, it's no no uh, no spoilers here. I didn't play well this tournament at all. I I I, I played pretty poorly um, all four rounds, and um, you know I didn't actually score that bad at Glendevere. So I was I was more surprised. I would say with how easy Glendevere played than yeah. I was how difficult Blue Lake played. But also you got to take into account too, like Blue Lake, it was raining and uh, the winds kind of picked up one of the days. And then also just the ground, the ground we were like playing in like a mud pit essentially. Mm. So I think that caused some issues here and there. It probably played a little bit harder than it normally does when it's dry. But yeah, I mean, I was I was kind of surprised with uh, with how easy Glendevere played, and I think once we obviously did scoring rounds, because again, it's very difficult when you're playing a course for the first time and you you haven't gotten any scoring rounds out there, and all you're really doing is throwing a bunch of shots on every hole because you only get like two two practice rounds on it. So at both Blue Lake and Glendevere. I didn't probably have the best uh, best knowledge, but like looking back at how Blue Lake scored in past tournaments, you know, I'm pretty sure Kevin Jones shot 15 or 16 under when they played uh, there in 2019. Sias, you can fact check me there, but I'm pretty sure he shot 16 under. Yeah. So 
I was just going to, because I was looking at the two scores, why I even brought it up, is it, when it was all said and done, if you look at the total field's average score, Glenn Devere, between two rounds, averaged almost, it was like three and a half strokes easier than Blue Lake. Well, because there's rounds. no, well, I would Oh, round four was the cut, though. Round four was the yeah, cut. Yeah, I was Got to factor that I in. I was going to say, well, I was gonna say I'd be surprised too. Uh, when you do these like scoring, when you do averages or when you're looking at stats and stuff for the courses, you really have to like only take into account like the top 50, 60 players. Yeah, because the bottom, for example, like you can go on that course, you can go and look at some of the people that like finish towards the bottom, and because Blue Lake just had so much OB, and again. The OB doesn't really come into play for most people. But if you're not playing well and you don't really throw that far, which is probably going to be the people towards the bottom of the field, you can rack up scores there. So that's why you see people that shot 87 and 80 at Blue Lake, yeah. but shot 75 at a much longer Glendevere. Yeah. Because there wasn't that much OB at Glendevere. And that was after actually doing a scoring round. It was very difficult to birdie out there. There, there was really only a handful of holes where you felt like, okay, I have to get this birdie. And the rest of them, it was, it was very difficult to birdie out there, which I think you saw in the scores. It wasn't like we had anyone go out and just, you know, have 15, 16 birdies like we do on some courses. But it was really hard to bogey a lot of holes really hard. Like you had to really throw bad shots, like really bad shots to bogey. And even then you had like a lot of, uh, all my bogeys. I want to say that I had a Glendevere. I could have saved par, mm. but it was either a missed circle one putt that caused me to bogey or, you know, I had like a 250 foot upshot that I flubbed yeah. and, you know, threw it to 40 feet and then missed the putt. So there was very few holes where you're like, crap, like I have no chance. I have no chance to save par from here where Blue Lake with how much OB there was, there was a lot of holes where if you went OB on your tee shot, you're like, all right, my best score is bogey now. So I think that's why the scoring uh, was what it was, but I think a lot of people liked it. I'm kind of, I haven't really heard from, you know, the fans on what they thought about Blue Lake and Glendevere. Players wise, it's always, you know, it's always interesting to hear what people say. I think a lot of, a lot of times I think it's hard for players to separate their performance with how they like a course. Mm -hmm. So you kind of have to take that, but you know, I think Glendevere definitely has a lot of potential for sure. And obviously it being its first time with the tournament there, I think they can see like, okay, this hole needs to be tweaked a little bit. This one didn't really have any scoring separation. Let's try to figure that out. Like I'm hoping they keep the bones of the course for next year and they kind of just adjust and tweak a few more things. Um, is there one, any specific hole that you? Oh, is there any specific hole you'd want changed, or have I? Mean, I think on? the yeah, I think the worst hole out there. There's not really that many bad holes, but I think the worst hole out there that definitely needs some sort of change would be um, hole 11's the par five down, and then it's twelve. 
is it 14? I think it's 14. It was basically, it was the one, it was the whole right before the really good par four where you have like the two trees that you have to throw through and like throw a huge turnover. And, and like Simon went OB early, right? I think on his throw on the final day. Okay. It's like the 820 or 840 foot par four. That's hole a really 14. good hole. I think it's hole 14. It's like a 450 foot par three. That's hole, th- hole 13. Is it hole 13? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hole 13 is what I'm talking about. It's like 450 par three, no B, no hazard. And there's just a bunch of, tr- there's nothing in the way for like 400 feet. And then the last like 50 feet, 60 feet, there's just a bunch of trees and there's not really a gap. Like mm. there's not like a, every, I mean, I played with a whole bunch of people. No one was like, this is the type of throw I'm throwing here. Everyone was just throwing a shot and then just hoping to get through. And um, surprisingly enough, a 450-foot par three, you would think it would play pretty difficult. It was the second easiest hole. Mm. Not because there was a lot of birdies there, just because literally it might have been impossible to bogey that hole. Mm. Like, you would have to probably three-putt to bogey it because you just chuck a shot up there, and then you have you know either a putt for birdie from circle two or you chip up for your par. So... um, that would probably be the only hole. I wish we had more holes like hole one. I think I was talking to someone with course design. I think in golf, you have like the tees and fairways in line, right? Yeah. And sometimes you have like a dog leg where it's just like a sh- uh, soft shaping curl. I think to make disc golf more difficult, which is I think what a lot of times we're trying to do, is you you instead of having the fairway, you know, here, you know, okay, how am I doing this? Here is like <laughs> here's the T and then the fairway is like this, vertical, yeah. right? So you're just hitting down. Instead of it like that, have the fairway more perpendicular to the T. So like hole one, I don't know, I don't know if this looks right, but this is how hole one was shaped. Okay. Right? So we were throwing on to a fairway that was um left to right like slanting left to right so one it was really easy to go through the fairway ob right and then when you're playing that hole it allows you to dictate how aggressive you want to play Mm. and so that's where even on hole one you saw so many different types of shots you saw people throw forehands you saw people throw mid turnovers you saw people throw fairway turnovers you saw a lot of different strategy on how you played that hole because it wasn't just simply throw a disc as far as you can and then play from where it is. So I love that of where you can decide how aggressive you want to get. And obviously if it pays off, you have an easier upshot for your birdie, but you're bringing in a lot of OB and, and, you know, hole 18 is another perfect example, right? Another hole where you're throwing your tee shot onto a perpendicular landing zone which I love. So you can do what some guys were doing, which was throwing all the way up close to that Mando. Yeah. That first Mando way up there, or you can kind of play the hyzer over the lake left and be now you're really far away, but it's a little bit safer or you can like chip short of the water. So I love those type of holes. And it looks like kind of some of these new design courses that we're playing. OTB had a couple holes like that. Um, Portland now has had a couple holes like that. 
trying to think if Jones Supreme had any holes like that. I don't think they did. But I love that idea. I love that new course design idea um, because as a player, it makes you have to think like how aggressive you want to get. Yeah, where you want to land. I saw us, you mentioned Amando, and I saw a post. I have not fact checked this because it just came back into my head. So, A, tell me if this is way off base. But someone said that they they thought or they counted that Glendevere had, I think it was Glendevere. 36. I was going to say 19 Mandos. Oh, I was way off. I just guessed. Is that, but does that did, sound about right? It, was there a lot of Mandos out did, there, it felt like? Did it? Oh, yeah, there was definitely a lot. Did but that? Did it feel, did it feel like it, there was a lot of Mandos when you guys were watching? I didn't get to catch a ton of the coverage. I was watching mainly scores. So, but I was saying, what you playing was that something you noticed a lot? Guys, of like you were sick of it. Yeah, I watched a so, little bit of it. I watched more of the ending, so I got the other course a lot. No, we're talking about Glendevere, the, oh, end, the last course. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. What uh, are what are people what are what are some of the people in the comments saying about it? Because that's what I'm, someone I'm curious about that. Because that was definitely the that that course had more mandos than any course we played right. by yeah. a mile. Yeah, but I but, think. I think that was okay. I, think I didn't feel like there were you could too many. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think what you have to do, and I, I would even suggest that they probably need to add a couple more Mandos because mm-hmm. there were a couple holes that, you know, I was playing with Calvin today, a practice round, and he was talking how a couple of the shots that he was playing where he felt like we're the like intended line for the course design. But when you don't have a Mando, people will find other routes. Well, we saw the, like like, the Simon line where he just threw the hyzer kind of broke the hole, but it was more of a risky shot. No, it's not that risky. That's what me and Ezra did. Yeah. That, that shot actually isn't risky at all because you're throwing. And this is why you probably need a Mando there because one, that's a really hard birdie hole just to begin with. Uh, regardless of whether you go the high route or like the turnover or the forehand where they the attended throw is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. But when you go left side, you bring OB into play. It's and you saw that. Like Isaac Robinson, he he went OB long. Um it's well, really easy to 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 throw OB going the left side. The Heiser with when me and Ezra did our practice round out there we found that the hyzer at at best probably gets us to like 30 feet right of the basket but the worst it's just out in the middle of the fairway and you just chip up and take your three yeah so um the only reason i didn't do that this, the final round is when we were like playing those first couple holes the wind picked up significantly it kind of died down throughout the the day but it was probably 10 15 miles per hour and it was like a head left to right. And I was like, okay, there's no way this disc is getting anywhere near mm. there. So, um, well, do you feel you like know, on I that would, hole, it's a, do you feel like on that hole, it needs a Mando or would it OB. just be solved by moving the T forward? Like, no, I think 20 feet, 10 feet. See, I think if you, I think if you want, I, I don't like moving the, the T forward because I, I like where it's at because it allows the turnover, mm. which is a hard shot, and it allows the inside forehand. Okay. I would say if you don't want to put a Mando there, um, which is fine, you can do that. The other way to do it is you literally make that fairway on the right all OB. Mm. So now the people that are throwing that hyzer shot out there, 
that is a risk reward shot. If you pull it off, yeah, you probably have a putt. But if you know it, you get it too wide and you hit the tree, or it doesn't swing as much as you thought, you literally just threw a shot basically all OB, and now you're having to retee. So I, I love that kind of idea too. If you want to continue to, you know, because I know people love seeing those types of shots as yeah. well. Yeah. But when there's no risk involved, that's where it's tough for me because you want to reward players for taking risky shots. Mm. See, that's and, a clip. And, I saw the clip on Twitter and Simon was throwing over the gallery. So in my head, it was OB. No, that's, but, all, that's yeah. all in play. Oh, yeah. Then why, shot, why not pitch it out there? Yeah, my, fir- my first round, I clipped the tree because you do have to kind of like... It's a weird angle. In front of, yeah. Yeah, you have to fade it in front of these trees. And mine ended up kind of flipping up a little more than I expected. Clipped the tree. So I was like 200 feet away, pin high, in the middle of the fairway. Mm. And so I just threw a putter up and made par and moved on. Yeah. To me, that should probably be out of bounds. And that's that would be my biggest takeaway for Glendevere is moving forward. I think that's what they need to look at is those type of shots. Of, okay, when someone goes way, you know, some of these holes require rollers. So it's like, okay, how do we make it? Hole four is a great hole. Like I love hole four. Um it's a roller hole for most people, but the whole left side is OB. So you're throwing your roller out over OB mm. and having it kind of come in. And if your angle's off or anything's wrong, you know, you're basically having to retee essentially. So I like that kind of play um, of where, you know, you're, you're basically making it to where bad shots get really penalized because you're not really penalizing someone being 200 feet left of the basket because their roller never stood up that that person is just getting a par. They're yeah. not, they're not having to, uh, and that's the tricky thing right now is the, everyone's so good that anything like inside of 200 feet on a course like that, without that many trees, you're getting, you're getting up and down. Yeah. You should be, if you're not, you're going to end up being where I am, uh, you know, down the leaderboard. So the, with how easy putting is right now, that's where it's really tricky. And and until putting, until they can figure out a way of making putting more difficult, you have to unfortunately really penalize bad shots on the tee. I don't love it. Like I would love to have it to where if you're 200 feet away, like not everyone's going to throw that under the basket every time. You're sometimes going to throw it to 20 feet. And I would love if like a 20 footer was a little bit more difficult than what it is now. Mm-hmm. But it's not. So the only way of really making like score separation happen to where you're not having, you know, someone that threw a good shot to 50 feet and missed their putt and someone that shanked it 200 feet left. And now they just chip up and they get the same score. You got to do hazard. You got to do OB to me. I think also that's, I think hazard is something that is super underutilized clearly because we never see it. And I think a course like this, where you're having a lot of people throw big flex shots, big rollers, I love hazard way more than OB because I want the person that barely missed the fairway to not get as penalized as the person that just completely shanked it and it's way over there. Now they have to go way over there and throw. Yeah, I, I love, I love that for, um, uh, for making kind of really bad shots. Uh, not because with OB, everyone just pulls it back in. You're on the fairway again. Yeah. 
Silas, did anyone in the chat bring up if what they thought of the Mando situation? Yeah, yeah. They were the majority of people like me were saying that it wasn't super noticeable. Yeah. Like at all. And I I, like commentary didn't even mention it really. Um, I didn't think they needed to. Um, I think it just blended well. uh, It's just how the course course played. So, I mean, if you, so I guess as as players, if y'all didn't feel like it was too much to keep track of, then. Yeah. Is what it is. I, I, I just say, saw someone post about it, so I was curious what it felt like playing it. No. It, it, like I said, if anything, it needed probably more. Um, I will say the number one rule that's broken on tour, what do you think it is? The number one rule that's broken on tour. Uh, probably where you run up. And, well, is that even the same rule anymore? I was gonna say where you plant your foot in accordance to a Mando versus the basket, but I don't. I think they changed that rule. Think about how many times that actually happens. You gotta think of something that happens, like something that people are in this situation quite frequently. Because what you just mentioned, I was just thinking because the Mando. I was thinking because Mando's. We're just talking. That might that might happen one out of like. Well, I also think they changed. I also think they changed that rule, so I don't even think that's it anymore. Um, I mean the most broken rule. I have no idea. I mean, I would say like foot faults that just never get called. That's what yeah, I was going to say. It's it's foot faults. So obviously you have the putting foot faults with people jumping. You know, there's pictures and videos of people both beat off the ground and the disc is still on their hand. Yeah. There's, you know, people have taken a hundred screenshots of me step putting where they're claiming my foot is on the ground and the disc is still in my hand. Um, those are probably the number, like those... For sure, but the other footfall is people throwing from out of bounds, and mm. I've I've seen it happen multiple times. I've seen it happen on coverage. I've seen it happen in person, where their foots are still on the ground when they throw. Is what you're saying? No, no one throws the power backhand, and their back foot is off the ground when the disc is out of their hand. It's impossible. It's not. It is not physically possible to throw far with your back foot off the ground. Are you sure about that? Yes. I want to look up the pictures. Pull up, pull up anyone throwing you dig, you, you have to use, you use the, uh, the ground to, to push off of your, yeah, but you're pushing into your release. So like you're bracing all your weights being transferred to your front foot and your back foot pushing. It doesn't come off though until after you after the disc is out of your hand. Try to throw like try like people watching this right now or listening. Next time you're out of the golf course, like over exaggerate, making sure your back foot's off the ground before before you release the disc, and you will realize real quick. I don't know that 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 is not a here. Uh, I found it. Got a picture of Paul throwing back foots fully off the ground, disc still in hand. Hold up, let me see it. Uh, is he throwing a power shot? Yeah, off the tee, putting a ton of power in it. How am I sending this to you, Silas? How am I getting this on here? All right, I'm downloading this image. I'm gonna airdrop it. Nope, can't even airdrop it to Silas. How on earth? How are we getting this on the on the stream, Silas? Yeah, we need to get this on the stream. Prove me wrong. All right, Silas. What? I've I've had multiple. Can I put I've it in the notes? Mul- okay, give me a second here. I mean, th- I mean, I'm watching a slow mo of him throwing, and his back foot's on the ground the whole time. 
I'm not going to say it's every single time, but I'm going through and like I, there's a shoestrick frame by frame that his back foot's off. There's another Paul frame by frame his back foot's off. And his, this is way there's out no, of but there's no, but there's no weight on his, his back foot there. So like I can see where you can do it. Well, hold on. I mean, I mean, hold on. Hold on. I'm not saying you can't do it. What I'm saying is not actual throw. Again, that's what I'm trying to say. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm putting. I'm putting throw. this in the nas, in the nas, the nasty nas. How, how's it actually pronounced, Silas? Brody doesn't even know about that. No, he probably doesn't. Uh, I'm gonna put it's, it. I'm gonna put the, it in the, the in the Trevor transfer. It's technically called the NAS in AS. Now, how the heck do I get I something into here? Is. Let's look at Eagle. Is Eagle Eagle uh, Eagle um, Eagle really torques his body? Team four. So he might he might actually be someone that's good that gets his foot off the bat. All right, Silas. It is. It should be in the Trevor transfer folder. So that we can throw this on the stream. Oh, Eagle's close. Eagle is very close. He might be another one that gets his back fit off the ground. I have no idea what it's called, man. Don't ask me stuff like that. You got it? All right, there it is. All right, it's about to be cut under your screen. Boom. There's a picture. Uh, Eagle's back. Eagle's back foot off the ground. There's another one. Okay, so Eagle, we got Paul... Eagle. So that does it so does certain, happen. So certain throwing styles. I will now. I mean, we have we have a video of Paul doing it and not doing it. Yeah. This this scenario, Eagles not doing it. Eagles is Eagles might be the most drastic of all of them. And he throws far, so you can argue that you really should have your back foot off the ground. Something to think you about. Think so? uh, I vividly remember at USDGC one year. Uh, the first time I ever saw it happen, like intentionally, uh, was Ricky on hole. Um, Wait a second. Okay. This is a dark horse one. He goes, his go. His, this is weird. His back foot goes off the ground and then back so, onto here, the ground. It, and then back. Okay. So here, foot is barely off. Yeah. Okay. 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 Foot's off the and ground. Then, and then. It goes back on the ground. Fascinating. Back touching. That's weird. What I what I'm saying is, I think this this is my point. My point is, I think it's it's one of those things where the gray area is so so severe, and there there are some people that in their head they're like, I know that my back foot is probably not going to be off the ground when I throw this. So they end up just doing a standstill, right? Yeah. And I think that they're at a huge disadvantage than the person that's like, oh, well, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna do it anyways and see if someone calls me on it. Mm. That's my kind of point. Um, so yes, clearly we have seen that even when you're not trying to do it, I'm gonna look up one more person. Yeah, I was gonna say the I, the one I remember was Ricky. Hole 15, I believe it is, at USDGC, the triple Mando hole. It was a His year. His foot was off? Well, so, yeah. So what happened was he went, um, trying to remember how he got in the situation he was. It was, oh, the whole left field was OB, and he had, like, made the Mando, but was OB left. And he, the line he wanted to throw forehand through 
I wonder if it okay, was so Amanda. It's a, it's a it's a hundred percent player dependent. Yeah, it's just throwing. Calvin, Calvin yeah. throws probably top five puts on the ground the whole time. Yeah, uh, but he threw a so, forehand, and I remember what he did was like the, if he if his foot was way out of bounds, it opened this lineup he wanted to take. And so what he did is he stood with one foot inbounds behind his like marked line now and one foot like, okay. I mean, it's Ricky straddling. So a solid like few feet out of bounds. Right and so he yeah. could throw farther, farther over this OB line. And he asked everyone on the card to watch his off foot. And basically what he did is he wound up and then like lifted his left foot, ripped through and then planted his left foot so that his whole body was over the OB but like when the disc released, his foot was off the ground, and then he just put his foot back down. So like gave him this like wide open gap, and it was it was legal. Everything worked. I'm fine with that. It was it was fascinating because like it, it just especially it was especially a risky play, he, but yeah, yeah, especially when he knows that like he's he clearly knows that he's trying to do something. Yeah, and he told but he I, told I, the everyone on the card like, hey, watch my left foot. What I'm gonna do is like push off, throw, and then plant again. I want y'all to make sure. And everyone watched it. Was like, yeah, see, that's fine. I gotta see if uh, if I'm if I'm a foot off or foot on guy. Where do you do you know? I think I'm a foot on for sure because my lower body's so much slower than my upper body. That's my whole problem. My form, my lower body is like a half second behind my upper body. Not actually a half second. I think. Um, Drew foot off. Drew's a foot off. Yeah, guy. I think that I'm trying to think. I feel or like at least um, begin in this in in this one. Trying to think of so players like that I know are foot. Paige Pierce's foot never leaves the ground. No, but I've seen Drew also throw with. I think when he throws like really hard, his foot doesn't leave the ground. I think it depends on the angle they're throwing too. I think a hyzer, you're more likely to get your foot off. Your foot come but off. like a that flat, might be true. Trying to like drive that might flat. that might be it. Yeah, because Eagle Eagle leans over like him and Kevin Jones. It's almost impossible for them to keep their back foot on. Yeah, because they lean over so much. Yeah, that's a that's a hundred percent what it is, Hunter. Yeah, because I think it. I think if you are trying to throw flat or back, you have to have more foot more weight on your back foot as you're pushing through, which keeps your foot on the ground. Like, there's no way that you can throw like a flat shot with your back foot off the ground. I think it'd be very hard. You'd be I think he'd be all like back. natural. Well, because like Paul, yeah. when he throws an Anheuser, I don't think his back foot really ever leaves the ground. Like even when he does his follow through, his back foot like slides around. Because like it just it's uh, it's unnatural to to transfer that much weight. I'm trying to find Drew throwing something that's not a hyzer, which is that's very very difficult. Very very hard to do. <laughs> he just but... he just goes flip your disc on the same amount of hyzer. <laughs> That's what, that's exactly what I do, so I can't say anything. He does it much better than I, but that's still how I. I play. mean, a little, a little, yeah, a little bit better, little slightly, better. slightly. But that's how that's my philosophy. I think you broke the code. Yeah, I think I think it's the angle you throw on. So if someone's ob and they don't throw a hyzer, call them on it. That's what we're saying here. That might be the only way of saying it. Yeah, that that's a hundred percent what it is. Because I've only seen him like throw. I've I've seen a couple of them where he like he drives in the back foot, but it has to be when he's throwing like a crazy Annie shot. Yeah, and not. That's interesting. I literally never thought about that, but there we go. We got it. Boom. Broken. 
fixed it. All right. Well, um, what else do you got? I was going to say, let's pivot over to Beaver State Fling. I first want to hear your thoughts on the course um, and then have a talking point or two. And then I got one final, <laughs> one final talking point after that. We taking any calls or questions? We'll, or we'll take some from the chat for sure. So Silas, start start looking. If yeah, you guys if have you a got, question, if you got questions or topics, throw them in the chat. We'll get through some uh, Beaver State fling really quick, and then take over to that. So, what do you think of the course? You got to play it today. You said both. You got to play two practice rounds. There's two courses, right? Or are you just playing one course? I only I only did one. Okay. Um, I I ended up playing with Calvin today. Um, so we did, we, uh, our doubles battle comes out tomorrow. Nice. I have to actually have to edit that right after this. Um, so that comes out tomorrow. So make sure you check that out. Also check out the Mulligan video. If you guys are watching or listening and you haven't definitely check out the Mulligan video. Really, really funny stuff. But we played, I don't know which is which, but we played whichever course we're playing on Friday and Sunday. Nice. Okay. In the, in the doubles battle. Didn't really get like, didn't really get a good gauge on it because we're literally throwing one shot and moving on. Uh, but then me and Ezra got a d- decent practice round in at the other course yesterday and has some really cool holes, some really, really cool holes. And obviously, if you've ever been out to Milo, it feels it feels unlike any other disc golf course. So it, it has like it has like the D glow preserve, maybe or uh, Jonesboro, where it's like just you. Like it's there's not really anything else out there, right? Because you're like in deep in this park, but with the massive trees. Uh, the running river by all that stuff. It, it really, it's really pretty sweet. There are, you know, obviously there are some holes where you're playing to a parking lot or next to a road yeah, yeah. where you're kind of getting away from the actual nature of all of it. But, you know, I've gotten three rounds in two at one course, one at the other. And I like it, man. There's a lot of really cool, really cool holes. Uh, there's a lot of shots that, we don't usually have to throw, which is really cool. I believe one, it might be the, is it West? It might be West. Something like the first, like four or five holes in a row, you're just throwing a different shot Mm -hmm. every time. Nice. Which, which is always kind of fun to kind of have some course like this. My thought on this course is like, this should be like the baseline. Okay. Like this should be like courses that are worse than this or shorter than this or whatever shouldn't be on tour. In my opinion, like this should be like the shorter. Cause there's obviously a lot of par threes. There's one par five on there might be like one par five. Yeah. Cause they made the other par five on the other, the, the albatross hole Yeah, from Philo. They made that a part four. Mm. So I think there might be only one par five in all 36 holes. So there's a lot of, there's a decent amount of par fours, but it's not, it doesn't feel like a super long course, but to me, like this should, this should be like the standard of like a really fun, probably 
30, 30 under or so is going to win it. You know, 30 something under is going to, in the 30s, it's probably going to win it. So it is going to be a shootout with, you know, three, only three rounds. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a lot of fun. So you're saying, you, are you saying this should be like the base of like Elite Series Pro Tour or Silver Series, like anything on tour? This is the base. No, I think this. I think that these these courses are good enough for an elite series event, for sure. Yeah. So this, I mean, um, I saw some takes. On, I wish. Yeah. Go for oh, it. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say, I wish some of the holes were closer together, so they could just pick the best eighteen out of the thirty-six. Oh, uh, okay. Because because then that would be an absolutely incredible course, but they're pretty spread out, so yeah. you can't really do that. Yeah, because I saw I saw some takes on Twitter where because obviously Beaver State fling has a decent bit of history in comparison to the Portland Open um, and really in comparison to most current Pro Tour events. Uh, but one of the big reasons that they can't take a Pro Tour, main Pro Tour stop there, is the live coverage where they, they yeah. can't go live from the course. I even think the Silver Series this weekend, I think that the final round isn't even going to be live, which it always is. Um, I'm pretty sure that it's not going to be this weekend. Was it like tape delay or something? No, I thought, wait, didn't they... Weren't they hyping it up saying first time ever Beaver State Fling live? Unless they, they might have changed it. They they had made a post a while ago that the no, Beaver State... I think they just recently posted something. They might have been able to figure it out. They might have been able to change it. Because um, what I basically the take I had seen was... Yeah, they said it's going to be live. It is going to be live. Yeah. Oh, heck yeah. Okay. Yeah. So where must have, where have you been, Hunter? On vacation. Literally, I've been on vacation. <laughs> I have my my phone was not by not in my hand most of the weekend, but no, originally they were say, posting it was wasn't like, most originally they had made a statement. I'm not crazy. It made a statement saying how Beaver State Fling wasn't going to be live this year, and that was like one of the big reasons they couldn't go there. But basically, the take on Twitter was that this is the they 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 felt that this was one of the first events where the Pro Tour was choosing money over what was best for the sport. Is kind of how they put it. Explain that. I think so. Basically, they were saying like this event, the Beaver State Fling courses history, all of that would be a better event than the Portland Open. But because the Pro Tour could go live, which now it sounds like they could go live at Beaver State, but because the Pro Tour could go live at Portland Open and do all of that, that brings in advertiser money, all of that for the Pro Tour, they were choosing to have that as an elite series over Beaver State Fling. So they were saying like this is the first time we're seeing. What's the difference between an elite series and a silver series? I mean, I personally, I and I'm sure I'm not the only from one a fan from the fans. I care way more about a, an elite series event. Okay. I, I mean, even even when the field stacked at a silver series, it doesn't feel that important to me. Interesting. Do you feel the same, Silas? Like, do you feel like the whoever wins Beaver State will will have the same amount of like fanfare as Simon just winning Portland? Oh yeah, hundred percent. You you yeah. do think so? Yeah, I think so. Okay, so Sil- so Silas is the opposite of me. No, I think it. I think it's the exact same I think thing. It's, I mean, it's I think to so. me. It it seems like it has it's been hyped up equal. Well, because like when I when I someone wins a silver series, like to me, I immediately am like, yeah, but they haven't won on the pro tour. Like uh, if if Brody were to win I, this weekend, for instance, yeah, I think a lot of his feel. I think a lot of his. I I don't agree with that. I think it's field strength and I think it's course based. I think those are the two factors that come into play. You have like the Tallahassee Open, for example, not a really popular course. I think it's actually might have been brand new. Um, 
and you had probably the weakest. I think the Tallahassee Open was probably by far the weakest field in any of the tournaments we've played this year. Mm. So yeah. you have like a silver series like that, but like everyone, everyone's at this tournament. But when you look back on the year, you're not going to know that. You're just going to see it's a silver series. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, it's the same thing. It's the same thing as uh, you know, majors versus elite yeah. series, right? That's like, like a major back, immediately feels like European Open, for instance, probably won't have as strong of a field as some of the Pro Tour events. But whoever wins the European Open will have won a bigger tournament and will have a like immediately a better yeah. season in my head. If someone has just the European Open long win term, and someone has term. just the Pro Tour win, the European Open win means more, even if the yeah, field's long- worse. Long term, I definitely see that for sure. But I'm saying short term wise, I think a lot of it, as far as like getting fans interested in watching and and that kind of thing, getting fans interested in coming out to the event, I think that's a hundred percent. Well, coming out, like if course, it, if they're both near me, who's playing? If they're both near me, yeah, I'm not I'm not going to care. But I'm saying as like a a fan on the East Coast with an, an event going on on the West Coast, so I'm there's no chance I'm going to an event. Like if basically if we had player A and player B, they both had one win. Player A won a pro tour that had a weak field. I don't think that's what we're arguing though. I'm not arguing that. I'm talking. That's what I'm I'm saying. I'm saying which which win means more. I like immediately the Beaver State means way less. I know, but that's that's not what I'm arguing. My my argument is like, what are fans paying attention to during the event? Silver series people pay less attention to silver series. There's less talk. They definitely are probably. No, I agree. They probably are definitely lower. I think not having live coverage or having any of that uh, definitely hurts. I don't even know if Jomez is going to be out doing post-production here. I don't think they are, actually. So all that, that, I I, I could be wrong. I'm I'm not sure. But um, if they aren't, then obviously all that goes into play. But I think... I think a lot of these events are based or especially are going to get to the point of because even even down the road, there's no reason why the pro tour, if they have the funds and they have the means of why they just wouldn't do live at Silver Series as well. Like there's not I don't see a, a reason five years from now that they're like, no, we're still it's a Silver Series. We're not doing live. There well, I feel like five years fun- from now, Silver Series will just be the way that you earn your way onto the pro tour. Uh, it could be. I mean, there's always there's always going to be like a tier system of like upper upper echelon tournaments and lower echelon tournaments. Like, if there is a tournament right after, like here's a good here's a good example. Let me pull this up real quick. Um, uh, well, because like if you're able okay. to do live, you're able to get a full field, you're able to get sponsorship money. Why isn't it just a pro tour event? Why keep it as a silver so, series? So. What, regardless of whether this is a silver series event or not, I think the event there's an event right after Pro Worlds. They're currently registered right now out of the top, and I'm just going off of not going off of world rankings. I'm just going off of Disc Golf Pro Tour. Yeah. Um, points. Two of the top eight people are registered, um, and then you've got everyone from nine through sixteen except for one person registered, and then sporadically like you know. 78%, you know, 80% of 17 through 30s registered. But if you look at just like the top guys, only two of the top eight are going to that. Yeah. I think you're going to have 
when you have like a big tournament, like a major, something like that, or you have a stretch of big tournament, big tournament, big tournament, and then you have like a, you know, whatever, even if it's a nine and a, it could be to point too where I think people are, and we're starting to see it, right? We're seeing it with Chris Dickerson. Um, we're seeing it with, uh, I'm trying to think Calvin, I think too is selective on some tournaments as well. I think we're going to see that more and more as, as the, the tour continues to grow of where players aren't going to fe- have to feel like they have to play every of it, especially when you start getting to the point of where players, and this is, this is going to be a big change in tour. If it ever gets this point of where players aren't touring in their vehicles. Yeah. When, when people are making enough money to where they can fly in to tournaments, I think you're going to start seeing a lot less, uh, you're going to start seeing players be a lot more picky at what events they're playing because right now we just play Portland open, right? So if you're in your van, are you going to just start driving to the preserve that's in three weeks? Yeah. Why right? would or, two you? Weeks, two, or three weeks after the Portland open, right? Are you yeah. going to do that? Or are you going to stick around in Portland for another week to play Beaver State fling? Right. So I think that changes though, when people are flying, when you start flying into events and stuff, I think we're going to see that. So it'll be interesting to see. I think you're going to have some elite series events be bigger right and then you're going to have some elite series events not be as big as the others and also there has to be some sort of like i think for the tour to continue to grow too and like build names and get people out there i think you're going to have to have some sort of it might not be the silver series but you're gonna have to have some sort of like lower tournaments you know, not worth as much points, not as big of a payout, whatever it may be. Heck, they might even they might even do it because right now it's kind of weird, right? Where like the disc golf pro tour kind of has its hand in everything. Think about this way. Think about if the disc golf pro tour has nothing to do because it's weird. Because the disc golf pro tour and the disc golf network are so like coincide, the same, right? Yeah. They're they're very dissimilar. So imagine if Let's just throw ESPN in there. Imagine if ESPN was like, hey, we are now taking over and we're doing coverage. So the Disc Golf Network doesn't really, let's just say they don't even exist anymore, right? The Disc Golf Pro Tour has no hand in the U- in USDGC, mm. right? They have no, at that point, there's yeah. no connection. So why wouldn't the Disc Golf Pro Tour have like a little mini event during USDGC? Now, obviously having a mini event during major probably not the greatest idea but this happens on the pj tour a lot of times where they have other events other tours other like wgc there's other things going on and like the top 50 players in the world will go and play this one event and the pj tour is like well we're not just going to sit around not do anything like we will still run an event it won't have a super strong field but it will it will get some newer names out there, newer faces out there. So I, I still see that being potential down the road. I just don't think the disc golf, I don't think the pro tour is going to be like every event is just going to be massive. Yeah. I think there has to be some that are just like, you could skip if you, if you know, if you're a top 10 guy, 
you might look at that and be like, ah, I'm not going to go to that one. Yeah. Now, speaking of like PGA Tour and stuff like that, obviously recently the uh, Live, the Saudi-backed golf tour, is it Live, what's it called? Live Golf? Live. Live? Uh, yeah. That's obviously been a big storyline. We've seen several more and more notable names stepping off the PGA Tour going to this. Um, it's not that many notable names, but continue. not that many, but more than I expected to happen. I mean, Dustin Johnson, Kevin Na were the two that just uh, came out. That, well, Kevin Na is not surprising. Dustin Johnson's the only one yeah. that was kind of like, wow. Yeah. If they didn't get Dustin Johnson, it wouldn't have really been a big thing. It would. It would actually probably be pretty bad. Yeah. It'd be. It'd be actually really bad. So, but what I'm thinking is from disc golf perspective. Um, obviously the disc golf pro tour, nowhere near anywhere close to as established as the PGA tour. What do you think the disc golf pro tour and disc golf in general should be looking at in this kind of developing situation with the PGA tour to learn from slash avoid this type of situation in the future where another, like some other company steps in and just basically like, Hey, you know, I know the Disc Golf Pro Tour has got this going. Here's a tour with a crazy amount of money. And they try to draw away all the top pros. Yeah, before before we get too kind of crazy here. Yeah. Because uh, um, obviously you're you're you know you're like the Pro Tour is nowhere near uh, the disc uh, the PGA Tour. Seventieth place at the Memorial last. Uh, Last weekend in the PJ Tour, last cash took home $24,600. Yeah. The biggest payout, I believe, in Elite Series history so far, I believe, was the Portland Open. And Stein Lazat took that down and won $10,000. Billy Horschel won the Memorial and took home $2.16 million. Yeah. So just to give you an idea, like we're not even I mean, we're not in the ballpark. No. We're but not in the park we're not in the parking lot. What I'm saying is we're not, even, be, we're not even the we're not even in the city. But it'd be a we're lot like easier suburbs. So that what I'm saying is it'd be a lot easier for a company right now to step in and put up way less money than this live golf is going to have to to compete oh, with yeah. the Pro Tour. Like they could say, Hey, like right now, if realistically if a company came in and they're like, Hey, Every winner is taking home forty grand every event yeah. for this disc golf tour. A lot, like a that's going to be tough for go. people not to switch. So I'm saying, like, a lot of people would switch. What should the PGA? What should the disc golf pro tour be watching right now? Do you think, or like, key moments of learning potential to avoid this happening in disc well, golf in the future, or is it something that we don't need to avoid? I mean, I. Uh... I don't know exactly all the ins and outs of, of the, the live PGA tour situation. There's a lot smarter people that have been following all that, that you guys can listen to if you want more of that. But I, I have listened to some podcasts and stuff talking about it and seen some tweets. I think the real issue that the PGA tour currently has is how their company is set up. They're set up as a non, uh, non-profit, yeah. non-for-profit, non-profit, yeah. non-profit, non-profit. Yeah. Um, That's how a lot of sports leagues are right now. So I don't think so, actually. I'm pretty sure NFL or someone else is. No, NFL's profit. I I think they're very, I think, I think it's the exact opposite. I think they're in the minority of. Really? 
of sport leagues. Yeah, the NFL is a nonprofit. Most, but the teams aren't. No, the teams aren't. The NBA is also a nonprofit. But the teams aren't. That, the NHL is I think that's – but again, but I think that's where it's tricky is like the teams aren't nonprofit. So, well, But there's the no league. teams – there's no teams in golf though. Yeah. So, so like the NBA isn't paying Steph Curry. Yeah. Right. The Golden State Warriors are paying Steph Curry. There isn't like there isn't a team in golf to pay their players. So that and I, I think I don't know if that's why like, I don't know if they can't do that because they're a nonprofit or whatnot. But like that's what is so entire. That is what's bringing some players over to the live tour is because they're straight up just giving people guaranteed money. Right. So they're saying, we'll guarantee you like you're just a college kid, just graduated. You're a good golfer. We're guarantee you two point five million dollars. So you go and you play. And once you make, I guess for some of them, once they make over two point five million in these tournaments, then they get more on top of that. But they're at least guaranteed two point five million, whether they make it or not as far as like how they do in their tournaments. I think that's really, uh, what it comes down to. That's really intriguing, obviously for a lot of people. Cause yeah. it's like guaranteed cash. So, but again, like, I don't know. I don't think tennis does anything like that. I don't believe so. Like, I don't think no. the ATP tour is paying, is paying Federer or Nadal or Djokovic or whoever, they're pay- I think they're still making all their money by how they do in the tournament and then all their sponsors. So I don't know. It's, it's very, very interesting. I don't, again, I think it's one of those things of where disc golf is such a niche sport right now of where I don't know the, the, before like a new tour happens. I, I think we would have to see people like, Outside golf companies coming in to try to get a piece of golf. Yeah, we'd see that first. We would see, you know, a big retail or manufacturing company starting to make discs, or you know, whatever it may be. We would see more of that happening, I think, before we see someone just like, "Hey, this disc golf thing's pretty crazy. Let's start a whole tour." Yeah, I think that is. Uh, I, I just don't foresee that ever happening. Yeah. I saw, it was, I saw it was fascinating. All this other stuff happens. We had talked about on Griplock before. Um, Trevor had brought up, like, you know, what it would take, like, how the, the pro tour would be vulnerable type of thing of if a tour started with enough money. And I was saying, if the pro tour ever got established enough, I didn't really think that that could be something that happened. But then, obviously, with the PGA tour, way more established no, it not a threat it yet but i mean it could continue to be a bigger threat i mean we saw i just saw where tiger woods turned down a nearly a billion dollars for this but like you offer that to the right oh, player man. then they might move uh and i don't know i just thought it might be something it's uh, we're whenever we look at golf obviously there's so many parallels to how the sport of disc golf's ran so i think moments like this are great things where we can just look at mistakes that were made places that they were open up to what they wish they could have done different if they were at the infancy of their sport to prevent something like that from happening. And then disc golf can like copy and paste and be like, Hey, to make sure this doesn't happen down the road, these are things that like, Oh, this is why these players were leaving. Is that something we can implement in disc golf type thing? 
Um, so I don't know. I just thought it was something interesting to keep an eye on as it continues to develop. These people, the people, the, the whole live situation, I think is is not. It's not a normal situation. It's not like just like a. It's not like the XFL. Yeah. You know, that's that's coming in and trying to make a, a football product. Like there's a lot of political stuff. That I don't really know that some people are claiming like that's kind of. You know, they're doing this for other reasons. Like, there's a lot of stuff going on over there that I don't really understand. I do know that they're overpaying the crap out of these people. Yeah. Right. So clearly, when when someone is, let's just say the market value for someone is a million dollars and you're willing to offer them ten million dollars, like something weird is happening for you willing to pay someone that much more than their actual value is. So, you know. Could someone decide to come in and be like, you know what, for the heck of it, I just want to have my own disc golf tour and offer people ridiculous amounts of money and and literally get every, not everyone, but like the majority of the tour players over to this new tour? Yes. And I think it doesn't take that long for you to look kind of at players' backgrounds with what they've done with sponsorships, how they've moved out, what they've done kind of. Uh, to think that they wouldn't jump at, you know, a potential big paycheck. So again, 90, 99% of the people playing disc golf and people playing sports in general, money is a huge, huge thing. Yeah. And when you're, when you claim it's not, uh, you know, you might be in the 1% that has just so much money, AKA Tiger Woods, that to him, that extra money doesn't really change that much, but him going there, that really puts like a big tarnish on his legacy. And mm-hmm. I think to him, he probably wants to, you know, he values that probably significantly higher. Now, Tiger Woods has, you know, you know, you look at someone like Phil Mickelson, who has come out and has talked about like gambling problems and stuff he's had, you know doesn't doesn't uh because he's probably going to sign i think with live as well all signs point that that's probably eventually going to happen and i think a lot of these players i think more players are going to jump over on this if it continues to kind of go that way my point being disc golf's not there but yes we've seen it where someone comes in offers players a lot of money and they immediately jump shit so i don't see that not happening if that ever did happen in disc golf, but it's not, I don't think it's going to happen. All right. Well, there you have it. Uh, Silas, do we have any questions or comments from the chat yet? Oh yeah. We got some, Heck yeah. we got some, uh, here we go. Let's go. Number one. Uh, we're just going to start from the, the furthest away all the way to the most relevant. Okay. The newest. Um, we got one for Brody. Brody, what do you think your biggest weakness in your game is right now? Ooh. Or what are you working on the most? I mean, putting has definitely been causing me. But that's the thing that you just can't. You can't miss easy putts. And if you are going to miss an easy putt, it needs to be like once a tournament, maybe two a tournament, something like that. So um, I think the first round at Blue Lake, I can't remember exactly what the number is, but... I think I missed like four or five putts inside the circle. Most of those also were for birdie. So that hurts a lot. 
but yeah, I mean, I've, I'm finishing towards the bottom of the field the last couple of weeks with uh, putting like circle one X putting my circle two putting has actually been pretty good. So it's just those like 20, 20 to 28 footers are killing me right now. So I've been working on that a lot. Um, my putting was much better on Sunday at the Portland open. I ended up only missing one, I believe inside a circle. And that wasn't until that was on Holy Teen, unfortunately. But, uh, I'd say that's been killing me the most. And then the other thing would probably be just not getting the disc close to like getting it close enough to the basket on like kind of easy upshots. Those two things probably were the biggest ones. I birdied a lot of holes this past weekend. Birdied a lot yeah. of holes. Yeah. And um, my strokes gain T to green has always been has always been like top twenty five. I think at most of these events. So. Yeah. All right. There we have it. Uh, second one, and we can kind of Hunter, you can chime in on this as well. Okay. Uh, if you, well, I don't know if you will, but okay. um. <laughs> What is um Brody, what's your take on the rowdy crowd during Simon and, and Garrett Gerthy's putts and throws? I I'm guessing on on that last hole. Um did you watch any of that coverage or were you there for that? I watched I want to say I watched like the last because I was when I finished my round, I, I was practiced for like an hour and a half. So when I was done, I want to say I caught like the last three holes on live. Live's really hard to tell sometimes too with their audio. I don't know what they're doing yeah. kind of with like how they're, how they're syncing in the audio there, but sometimes it's kind of, you can't really hear it until after the fact. I actually thought the Portland crowd was closer. It was the closest to how I would love a disc golf crowd to be. I think a disc golf crowd can be a lot more rowdy than a, a golf tournament. Um, I don't think it needs to be as uptight as a golf tournament. And and when you go to a golf tournament right now, they're more rowdy than a disc golf tournament. Like one thing I would love. So if you, if you're listening and you're going to go to a tournament, one thing I absolutely would love to see more and hear as a player is if we're like on a par four or whatever, whatever hole it is that we're like throwing far as soon as, like, obviously be quiet as the, the players, you know, getting ready to throw. But as soon as that disc releases, like, if you want to yell out something or cheer or scream or whatever, like, a roar or whatever, like, I think that is, I think that energy is awesome. And also, like, when a good shot happens, like, hooting and hollering, all that, I, I don't think we need to feel like we can't, can't be loud like i think players especially need to get used to playing a tournament where there's fans you're going to have times where you're setting up a putt and a huge roar happens a couple holes away like these are all things that are going to happen and i don't think the i don't think we want to shy away from that i don't think we want to be in a spot where we're telling fans or fans are feeling like they can't move they can't talk they can't do anything um clearly like there's certain situations where yes like if you're 50 feet away from a player 
probably shouldn't be talking or moving around when they're setting up the shot. But I love the rowdiness. I thought the Portland crowd was awesome. It was incredible to play in front of. I got to, we had a decent crowd a couple days. Um, actually, I think both days at Glendevere, we actually had a decent crowd following, which was awesome. 18 had a decent amount of people just chilling there. So, it, you know, even though I played 18 terrible both days, it was still cool to kind of throw shots and putts uh, and, and with a big crowd around. But, yeah, I'm all for the rowdiness. Again, a time and a place for it. But um, to me, that's one thing that I think can can set us apart a little bit from golf is it's not as polished. It's not as, like, buttoned up. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, I was going to say... Like, I was gonna say basically the as golf soon as doesn't need to exist. No, I was say basically as long like as soon as a disc comes out of a player's hand, whether it be a putt, a throw, whatever, then like to me it's fair game. Yell, scream, whatever. I think it's a good time. Yeah, I, I think, think when when a player is lining up or is in the throwing motion, obviously that's a no go because you don't want to distract the player. But yeah. like as soon as it's out of their hand, yeah, yeah. There's a couple people saying in the comments that they were loud during their, like as they were going up to look at their shot and and that. Kind if of they're stuff. like, if you're walking up the fairway and players are like, let's go, like people are yelling, let's go, Simon, let's go, Garrett, whatever. I'm fine with that too. Yeah, I think it's it's once the player is actually like addressing their lie and like getting focused. That's when it needs to like, shh. Yeah. and that's when the quiet sign should and go up. May, it should be yeah. the the volunteers. I don't. Even, I, don't even, I actually disagree. I don't even think. I, I think that's even too soon. I think it's when the player. Is, I'm walking up to my disc. I've technically, I guess, has addressed the lie. I'm right? saying like when you're like lining but up your I, putt. Oh, okay. You're talking about putting, not necessarily putting, throwing yeah. a shot. Throwing, I think it's you have like it's once you have your disc and yeah. you're like ready to about to start your run up, then it's yes, yes, yeah. yes. But yeah. I think that's where okay. like the the volunteer yeah. comes in of like they need to have the quiet sign and raise it. Yeah, they hold up the sign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But until exactly. the vo- until the quiet think, signs up, then yeah, fair game. Well, yeah, and, and, the, and, and the volunteer shouldn't hold that up until the player has, like you said, addressed their lie, getting ready to putt. Yeah, right. And specifically in Portland, I think there could have been like a catch cam down near the basket that they could have been pulling audio from when Mm. the players Uh, may not have been all the way down there. So you know what I'm saying? You don't know where the audio is coming from. Yeah. 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 It's It's kind of hard to judge that. But uh, anyway. Let's make uh, sure to say get rowdy. (laughs) I just want to hear like a get in the basket. Like someone has like a circle two putt. You know, and it's 50 feet, so there is some t- air time between the putt and it getting to the basket. And as soon as the disc release, you like, get the basket. Like, I would, that would get me. I mean, obviously, if I made the putt, it would be good. If I missed the putt, it would kind of suck a little bit. But, <laughs> like, if I, if, if I heard that as the disc is flying and then it cashes in, like, oh man, that, that would be awesome. So, That'd as long, sick. as long as they don't yell, like they have to be after the disc releases your hands. Yeah, nothing correct? to distract a player. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, I just want clarification because some people are saying some other things. So. The roars, the roars out there though, because I was still on the course, obviously, when the lead card was going through. Yeah. The roars were loud. So, like, I think obviously there's a time and place for it as well, right? Like, I'm playing for 30th place. You know, me making a putt, you're going to probably get like a. 
nice putt. Like, but now if I'm contending for the lead and I make a putt, you know, obviously the rowdiness is probably going to be a little bit more there because that putt actually matters. Um, so yeah, that's what I loved is I saw when people were contending and stuff like was getting serious and the drama was building all that stuff. Like people were getting loud, people were cheering loud and it was awesome to kind of hear those echoes of the cheers throughout the course. Yeah, absolutely. And Uh, as a player, that's what you, I mean, you want to play in front of that, you know, like I I don't want to play where, you know, I've got, I mean, obviously I love having whoever comes out and watches, but I want to be in spots where like my putts like significantly matter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it depends on the player too. Yeah, I'm sure some players don't don't like if you're it, but good under pressure or if you if you're not. I mean, that's the same in any sport. Like oh, it, yeah. it, but it's just are you built for the moment or not? Yeah. Like if you're if you're not going to be good and playing in front of crowds, then just don't get on lead card. Basically how it should be. <laughs> Or just get used to it. Yeah, like those are your only options. Like yeah. either don't be in contention for the well, lead or get used to it. But as but the thing is, as disc golf gets bigger and bigger and bigger, like I'm I'm the perfect example, right? Where I can be in 40th place. So you could be in 40th place on my card, and now all of a sudden you're playing in front of 50, 100 people. Yeah, there's still gonna be a gallery that, where people the, are, that could right. be the that could be like galleries are going to you know. I saw, I want to say it was like, who was it? Sexton, Calvin, or no, was he in Sexton? I think it was just Calvin. It was Calvin, and I don't know if there was another big name on his card. And it was on Saturday. It wasn't even final day. It was on Saturday. He had like 75 people watching his card. Yeah. So like, that's going to happen. Like as, as disc golf continues to get bigger and bigger, as more fans are coming to these events, which we have seen a trend over the last couple uh, events, like especially when you're going to these bigger cities, I think that's what disc golf needs to do too. Like we need to stop going to like small little cities. Like we need to go to big cities. Like there's a lot of people in Portland. So I wasn't surprised to see tons of people come out to the Portland open versus like a Jonesboro. Now, granted the local community and disc golf community in Jonesboro is big. And a lot of them did come out and support but like, in my opinion, if we played instead of in Jonesboro, if we played in like somewhere in Atlanta, we're probably going to get way more people to come out to the event if we're in Atlanta than in Jonesboro. So yeah. like Emporia might be like the only upset, except exception to that. But also I would argue that if Emporia didn't have like a big AM tournament going on at the same time, I don't think the crowds would be that big. Hmm. I think a lot, I don't think people, a lot of those people that are at that tournament are there because there's an AM tournament. Yeah. I would, I would assume so. Um, well, so like that would be an, int- that would be an interesting one. You'll oh, see Worlds would be a good, I'll say Worlds would be a great, would be a, great example. That, that, I mean, uh, if you can't get people to come in for a world championship, then you're not going to get people to come in for just an elite series. So that yeah. would be a great, that like if tons of people come in, then, you know, jury's still out on whether or not, it makes sense to do that for like a smaller tournament. But if you hold the world championship and we can't get thousands of people to come out to that event, then I think that is something that probably needs to be looked at from the pro tour side of like, where are we actually having these events? Yeah. Cause Portland, like I said, like Portland was incredible. Um, even OTB, which isn't like Stockton's not the biggest city in the world, but it's a decent sized city with tons of big cities around it. Uh, that crowd was crazy too. So 
I would love to continue to kind of see these crowd sizes grow and grow and grow because when you're actually on the course too, as a spectator and you're like looking around and there's tons of spectators spread out. I think, I don't know. I think that just looks better for the sport yeah. than literally everyone just watching one card. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's kind of like what we talked about the other night, just like getting tournaments in bigger cities. Um, next up, we got got a little uh, debate maybe here. Um, Ooh. What do y'all think about the last hole of the tournament? Thoughts? Uh, this guy's saying thoughts on the choice of uh, Simon Ooh, when he yeah. chose to throw big. Good okay. decision, bad decision, risky. Go ahead, Hunter, because you you probably already talked about this on Grip Lock. So you I wasn't on Grip Lock this week, but. Here's oh, here's what I'll say. So yeah, I know. I, I, it was like my second time I've ever missed Griplocked. But um, the uh, well, it, my initial thing with it was a player going for the win. Like, is a player going for the win? Like, I think that's great. With Simon's post interview, I think it was a little bit of a more unique situation because, from what I understand, he basically said that's the only shot he practiced. So like, that was a shot he felt comfortable with. So it wasn't necessarily like he was getting aggressive and going for the win. But in that type of scenario in general, I well, think that – go for it. Well, I, I disagree with, like, there's no way that's the only shot he felt comfortable that's with. That's what he – he said that he – that's the only line he practiced. So he said, like, he, he know, just but, didn't practice anything else. So like that's what he felt comfortable with. Yeah, but the shot – the shot – the shot that the, – the non-aggressive shot there is literally – uh, what, who is he? Dismania. So what is that? That's like a a tilt. No, they don't throw tilts. What do they throw forehands? Like like, what, like, a, like a, a splice overstable raptor. FD three like an overstable raptor. Like an FD three. Okay, so that's like a forehand, two hundred and fifty foot. But he has a, he's had his elbow thing where he hasn't okay, been able to throw forehands then it's, much. Then it's then it's a two hundred and fifty foot putter shot. Yeah. To to a straight putter shot or a turnover putter shot onto a fairway that's a hundred feet wide. Yeah, like it's not like it's. I'm just gonna say it's not like it, there's a gap or there's some sort of like yeah. I just I never practiced that line and like it's just a stock 250 foot straight shot with another stock 250 foot straight shot. So I think what he meant was like. He just always in his head had the idea that he was going to go for it. Yeah. Well, regardless, um, I just want to make that. Yeah. I want to make that clear where it's where Simon was. If Simon's in that spot, and you're like Simon, you have to make birdie. He's making birdie ten out of ten times. Yeah. No yeah. doubt in my mind, he's he's making birdie from there ten out of ten times. Yeah. My I've I, I've always sat on this side of the fence, and I think I always will. I just think when a player is in a situation where they could lay up and like hope that the tournament works out for them or they can go for it and know like, Hey, if I make this shot, if this happens, I'm going to win. Like I'm putting, like I'm making a play that if this executes, I'm putting all the pressure on this person. And like that type of, like that's a shot going for the win. I like that play every time. Cause I feel like you, if you go for the win and you lose, you know, in your head, like, I did what I all I could do versus you lay up and you lose and you're like ah you'll always be thinking what if I didn't yeah like well I mean it's what a lot more aggressive? exciting you think it's crazy to say that if Simon 
if Simon would have laid up there, that Girthy probably would have won. Is that crazy to say? I think that's crazy to say, yeah. Because I think there's probably a decent percentage. What changes? That he, yeah. What changes if, if Simon girthy, lays girthy up and he's goes in for it. Girthy goes for it. And uh, that is a much, that is a, Girthy had a wasn't disc. Wasn't he already going go. for it? Yeah. We mean. He threw the big forehand, but it went OB. Oh, he was laying up. He wasn't up. going for it. That's, he was trying to lay up. That's a layup oh, okay. girthy, girthy had a disc in his hand to go for it. Saw Simon throw out of bounds, and then he went with the forehand. Ah. So, so what I because obviously when Simon goes out of bounds, immediately in your head you're like, if I birdie this, I win. I win. Yeah. Right. But what I'm thinking is Garrett's go-to shot there, like his shot that I think he is way more comfortable throwing, is that turnover backhand. Yeah. And yeah. so I'm thinking if he goes for it, right. At worst, it crosses and bounds up there. He pitches up, and we're like, uh, you know, we're going to a playoff. If obviously Simon, this is if Simon goes out of bounds, and then Girthy still goes for it. But I just feel like if Simon lays up and Garrett was like under the impression of like I'm going for it, with how well he was throwing, with how well he was putting. I put I would put a lot of money that he gets up and down from there. Mm. Like I put I put a lot of money into it. So I think it was one of those situations where what Garrett did, you can't you can't like fault it. Like yeah. I think everyone in that situation would have done exactly what Garrett would have done is oh, Simon went out of bounds. He's not gonna make birdie from there. All I have to do is chip chip par. I, I would say the only thing that maybe people have a question with is like, why does he not throw a turnover rock there? Why does he go with a forehand? Um, I would say that would be like the only thing. Um, yeah. But, but you but, see what I'm saying of like, even in Garrett's situation, if we flip it on its head, cause obviously it was asked about Simon, even in Garrett's situation, if he's laying down at night, he's thinking through the scenario and there's a, he's like, if only I would have went for it, which I guess if he went for it, when OB, then he's probably thinking, such an easy no, chip. Up. I think, but in Simon's no, yeah. shoes, farther back, <laughs> yeah. I think you go for that every time because you're you're taking initiative and you're putting pressure on someone. Well, he also, if I'm in Simon's shoes as well, there, I'm also knowing that Garrett has been. I mean, Garrett literally, if you if you watch coverage, if you guys go back and watch, Garrett was Garrett was so good. Yeah, he, at Glendavere especially, he was so good. He was throwing incredible shots and literally. That day, he was making every putt. Like any putt he was staring at, I don't know how he was doing it, but it was just drop. He was just dropping him in the basket. And if I'm Simon there, then yeah, I'm 100 percent thinking in my head like he's getting up and down. If I lay up here, like that's gonna suck. If Garrett just steps up and throws this 450 foot turnover, and you know throws it to 30 feet, that's yeah. gonna suck. So you know it's what again. I think. I think the conversation actually—that's an interesting take that Simon going out think, actually won it for him. I think the conversation here is it should be actually not so much on what Simon and Garrett did, more on look at these type of holes and especially holes towards the end of a tournament. These are the type of holes we want. Yeah, because if this was a par three and. Simon goes OB 
like Garrett's just still throwing his same shot. Like there's no there was a lot decisions. of holes we play. Yeah, a lot of holes on tour we play. There's no decision being made. Yeah, like if you're playing match play with someone, regardless of what they did, you're still probably going to play the same way. This hole, that's not the case. Yeah, and I love that. So yeah. I think that's I think that's what the conversation be should be more is like how do we get more holes like this. How do we design courses to finish with holes like this? Because that tournament would have been so boring if if it finished with, I mean, Jonesboro hole 18, another hole. That's an incredible finishing hole, right? You have decisions to be made off that. Like this whole, this course would have, or this tournament would have really been kind of lame had that final hole been like, eh, because then we would have probably just gone to the playoff. Yeah. All right, Silas, let's get one more. Yeah, if there is one more. All right, wrap it up um, with this one. That one, one to follow that um, is what's the proper final round interview look like? Um, what do you think, Brody? Do you like here? I'll rephrase it. Do you like when the TD or whoever pre- presents their trophy runs out there and then and then the what uh, Brian Earhart? immediately comes up to him and he's like asking him questions interview right on the spot or do you like the post round here's here's the thing here's the thing you have so i'm trying to think there's always like some sort of thing some sort of finalization of the tournament that happens before any before the interview happens before the trophy presentation before anything like that the the closest thing i can think of is like mma where as soon as they announce the winner you know dc joe rogan whoever's there is coming in with an interview but the the time from when the fight happened like when the fight ends to when they announce the winner there's like a massive gap there. There's normally like a good solid minute, two, three minutes, but it's not like the fight just ends. They have to like, when it goes to like a decision and even when you knock someone out, like when you knock someone out, the person celebrates a bunch, goes around, all the coaches come in. A lot of times, like obviously the person that gets knocked out has like medical attention. They try to get him back up to where they can like both be. And then they announce the winner by TKO or whatever. And then the announcer comes in. I think that's like the soonest. Um, Cause I'm even thinking like NBA, like for the NBA finals or even the playoffs that are going on right now. Right. Like when the game's over, you have, you know, the, the opposite team, like immediately goes to the locker room because they don't shake hands until the series is over, which I'm fine with. Cause you're literally playing the team again, but Normally you have the, the the players and stuff like celebrate all that stuff. The coaches, I do think maybe do the coaches shake? That would be interesting. A lot of times they do, yeah. After every game, regardless. Okay. Typically. I'm not I'm not sure. But yeah, there's stuff going on for like a minute or two, and then you'll have like the NBC, they'll they'll cut down to whoever's on, you know, the floor to get the interview. So there normally is like a, a, a time there. My biggest thing with disc golf is you're announcing the winner before the winner is actually official. That is my biggest thing because all that needs to happen eventually is this would suck. 
But all that would have to happen is like you do all this stuff and then Simon goes and figures out a scorecard and something is wrong. And then they post the wrong score and he gets a two stroke penalty and he loses. Like that's the crazy thing to me. And obviously it's a, a crazy situation and, and potentially will never happen. But when we finish our rounds now, the Disc Golf Pro Tour has done a great job of having a spot for us to have to go and finalize our scores and submit our scores. A lot of times you actually have a TD, someone from the PDJ, someone from the Disc Golf Pro Tour, someone like that, some official there to make sure that everything is finalized and good to go. It's crazy to me that that just gets bypassed with the the final card. That's the crazy thing. So to me, I feel like Simon wins, celebrate, do whatever. But then like, he, like also I'll say this too. Some people I'm, I'm starting to convert some people on handshaking after hole 18 versus on hole 18's T. There you go. I'm starting, I'm starting to convert some people. And I heard, <laughs> I heard that the reason why that started in disc golf, like the, the whole reason why that was a thing was because people would just leave after they putted on 18. They would just peace out and leave. So they're like, oh, let's start doing it on 18. That doesn't happen on the disc golf pro tour no. because you have to turn in your scores. So again, this is something that I think can be different on the pro tour than it, than it happens in, you know, leagues and, and uh, smaller tournaments. But like, to me, I think Simon puts out, you, you know, all, all the people come up and uh, say, Hey, great playing with you caddies, all that stuff. Then walk to the scoring tent, finalize your score, make sure all the scores are right. And you know, you don't have a five on one hole and a three on another. And you actually had a four and a, uh, a four and a what four? I can't try to think <laughs> how that works, but like something to where it's like make sure everything is good, and then and then come back and then have the trophy presentation. Like, because ha- that's the other thing too is like you can set up the trophy presentation to be a little nicer, right? Yeah, like you can have some sort of like I don't know, like Worlds was pretty sweet. Like the way Worlds did it, now, I don't know if that's because well, no, that's not true. They just rushed in real quick and handed him the trophy. Yeah. Hmm. That, that's kind of weird, though, because it is a playoff. So I think a playoff might be different, though. Yeah. Because you've already finalized your score. But I think it's kind of cool to have that like moment of, of yeah, you know, Simon's walking to the scoring tent, giving high fives to all the fans. Everyone's cheering for him. He's finalizing the score. He comes back. Everyone's just cheering. Then you can have the people come in, the sponsors, all that stuff, do the do the trophy presentation, and then the interview. Now there's like a five to seven minute gap, or you know, it's probably not even more. It's probably three or five minutes gap. Simon's more composed. Yeah, well, have, I think you have the interview. I think even on the flip side, presentation wise, it does a few things because if you watch this coverage, the Brian Earhart interview. It wasn't was as cringy. bad. It, it wasn't was as so bad cringy. as Silas and Trevor. No, made it. it was so it, bad. It was nowhere it was near as bad terrible. as they make it out to be. But it wasn't a great interview by any means. Um, I mean, it's not Brian's fault, though. No. Well, no, what I was saying no, is Brian not. is having to the whole time mentally prepare for two interviews because up until whole eighteen happens, he has Garrett or Simon, and he doesn't know which is which he's going to have. 
So he has to now compose himself, get his questions, and he has 30 seconds to do it, maybe less. Luckily, Simon did this runaround thing like he does, but he could have had no time at all to prepare that interview. But what was interesting, though, was they had that interview. Then a few minutes later, they had, in like the post thing, the Grant guy from the PDGA had Garrett and Simon back-to-back interviews. And the interview that Simon gave... Not necessarily. Some of it was the questions he was asked, sure, but the interview Simon was able to give from the one he gave to Brian and the one he gave to Grant with the PDGA on the same pop broadcast, minutes separating them, were worlds different. The, he was able yeah. to compose himself, let the moment sink, sink in, then give an interview. And I thought that was a great example because it did two things. One, it allowed the interviewer to be more prepared because he now had minutes to go through the round, make sure he had the key points of what happened during the round, make sure he had the good talking points, all of that. And two, it gave Simon a chance to let the wind sink in and then have his emotions like where he can actually process questions and stuff like that. And so the interview was a much better product a few minutes later because it wasn't just an immediate like, wow, I just won again. Okay, now I have these questions being thrown at me type thing. So and, and I like, I like also, the... I like the I was gonna say I like the interview in front of the crowd, though. No, I agree. I do, yeah, like, I like. The, I think I that wish, I think I, they should just bring I, out like a backdrop and like a little podium, and then that's like no. the trophy presentation. No backdrop. No, it doesn't so have to bad. be a back something. You, anything that just, looks. You have all the crowd. You have the crowd as the backdrop. Sure. That's cool. I'm just saying, like you can put up like a temporary stage or something. Something you make yeah, a little spot for presentation. Hey, here's what I think. Okay. Look, uh, I was watching NASCAR. I was watching NASCAR okay. on Sat or Sunday, and the way they do it is that when the as soon as the guy wins, he does the donuts. Yeah. In the on the checkered, yeah thing, yeah. In the grass. and then yeah, and then he goes into the pit lane and he goes to the like stage where he gets the trophy and he does the interview. Like I feel like it should be more like that. Well, if well, they can have a stage, uh, trophy. you know. Silas, you know why they don't have interviews right after someone wins NASCAR. You you've heard the story, right? No. What are you talking about? An interviewer tried to like immediately once a NASCAR driver won, try to go out and get an interview and got ran over. Oh. So that's obviously why they don't do that right after the race. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes that's sense. That's fair. They uh but all right. Anyway, the, but I, for as far as the pro tour goes, I also think rest in peace. I also think interviewer. yeah. I also think as far as the pro tour goes, it would it would make the tournament feel more complete if you had a time where Simon taps in. You know, you get the cinematic shots of him with the crowd, all of that. It gives whoever the commentary team is time to summarize the event, summarize what you just watched. Go to commercial, whatever you gotta do. Get like that B roll stuff going. Also, just stay on Simon. Yeah, too. Like literally, have a camera, follow him. That's what I'm saying. That's a great time for the people, for the commentators, to give analysis on what you just watched. Break it all down for you. Have a highlight package of Simon throughout the round, how he or throughout the tournament, how he got to the win, and then and then you come back to the trophy presentation, the interview, and it puts a nice bow on the whole thing. Versus this chaotic mess of you, Brian's things are brian's mic's already on and he doesn't know and he's like all right so you're gonna count me in all right simon simon you're gonna count me in okay and we're and we're here with simon like you that none of that will have to happen if it's more just like all right let's process through it you know 
and it's all just a more of an established setup thing versus you have Terry or, or Brian pushing fans out of the way to try to get to get to Simon before he walks away, and like that just it, 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 I I I'm shocked it hasn't been changed yet, but they must think it's better because I mean I'm I'm getting tired of talking about it at this point because I feel like every tournament it gets brought up on Grip Locked or Debate Night or somewhere where it's just like I have to talk about it. The thing is, is regardless of how cringy it is or all that stuff, it's it's still like you have to sign like there. You still have to like not sign. We don't do scorecards like that, but like you still have to finalize your score. So that's the thing that to me, that's just the thing that makes no sense at all. Oh, yeah. Because like what if there is a provisional? Like, what if like there is a provisional and that doesn't show on UDISC? So like you played a provisional if, on what three. If, or what if there's a what if uh, I'm trying to think who else was on that card? Garrett and. um Paul. And then who's the other person? Isaac. Isaac. Yeah. So what if, what if, you know, say like, uh, you know, Simon, Simon's, you know, celebrating whatever, whatever he just won. And that now he's being interviewed and like Garrett and Isaac are over there. Like, all right, let's finalize these scores. Right. And like, there's a, there's an issue. Like Simon's now just like, like not with Simon's score. Not with, with one Simon's of theirs. Score. Yeah. Issue. With one of theirs, like Isaac's, like, oh, I have a three here, and Garrett's, like, I have you as a four. Like, is Simon just not involved in that conversation at all? Like, that's where it's just like, to me, let's just get like, let's just get the the scores finalized. Well, it's also funny. Then, um, what was the tournament? It was a silver series, I think. Uh, Sarah Hokum just won a few weeks ago. Now, um, uh, she won. She won Masters Cup. Masters Cup, and she won it from Chase Card. And so the, the scene was like somewhat awkward or is a weird, weird to watch because basically what happened was they tapped out on the green and it's down here and then up on top, up top the hill by, the by like the T. Yeah. By like whole one's T or somewhere. And, yeah. the, and then as soon as it like they, they tap out, they cuts to the camera and they're like on top of the hill watching and then like turn around for the trophy presentation to Sarah Hokum. And like the lead cards in the background, still finish like wrapping up the tournament behind her. Love that. And I'm Love like, because we, Trevor and I were like texting back and forth as it was happening. I was like, I've got to see like how are they going to handle this? Because like you don't walk up to lead card and do it right now. And it was like, oh no, they just had a camera and mic and everything like 500 feet away with Sarah and made sure she was like set set apart. But they still like the second the final putt was tapped in by the person who ended up coming in third or fourth or whatever. As soon as that so you know, happened, it just cut over to Sarah Hokum. So you know what happens. You know what happens in golf. How that works, right? Is like a lot of times the players in the clubhouse. Yeah. Like and they're watching it in the clubhouse. There's and a lot of times there is a camera on the player. So you know you'll see like let's say someone had a putt to tie the play. Well, not even that. If if it's if it's something where like they are close to having to play in a playoff, then they're warming they won't up be in the clubhouse. Yeah. They're warming up. But as soon as like, as soon as it's finalized and they know they won, they'll like, you know, high five their caddy or whatever like that. And then like, they're in the clubhouse. Like they now have to make their way out to the 18th green to where the trophy presentation is going to be. So there's still, even then in that scenario, there still is a gap. Yeah. But like, yes, we don't have like clubhouses or anything like that. So like, if you're Sarah Hokum, like, I mean, are you just like going to your van and you're just like sitting in your van watching coverage? It's, it's, it's kind of awkward. They got a camera on her in her van. 
Yeah, it's, it's, it makes it more awkward when we don't really have a place to go when the tournament is over. Yeah. So I don't I don't know how you do that better, honestly. Like, I, I don't have really a suggestion on it when someone wins that's not on lead card. But, yeah. All right. Well, there you have it. That wraps it up for this week on Debate Night. We'll be back again next Tuesday, probably a different time. Same place, though. Oh, people, people want us to talk about Val real quick. Did they not talk? Did you guys not talk about? Uh, I wasn't on grip. Hey, no, we talked about Val. Let me tell you, Val's a beast. All right, that's all. Silas on grip lock this week. Yeah, I was. That that's all that needs to be said. Val's a beast, and she's yeah. uh, she's now top four. In she's your been, power she's been top four. She's been we, top four. Can we just say when we were trying to figure out who we wanted to sponsor going into this year that Val was potentially the biggest no-brainer of all time. Yeah. Like I said her, I said her, before in the off season I said without a shadow of a doubt Val was the best dynamic FPO signing. I said there's there's no no doubt in my mind. I said Val was going to be more important than the Kona signing. And I stand like by watching that. watching Val a couple things to point out. One, her like upside is extremely high. Yeah. She has an insane insane upside. But like beside the fact that her game right now is really really good and she can continue to get better and she is getting better, she does she does she might be one of the best under pressure in the FPO field. She might be one of the best because well, it, she's battle tested. Obviously Obviously, she blew out the field in this event, but like go back to Waco when she won Waco and threw that shot on hole 17. That is a very hard shot, and yeah. she just nailed it. So, yeah, she's Val- someone that literally can like she can play under the pressure, and her game is so good. She's one of the best putters on FPO, and uh, that was like an absolute no brainer, no brainer for us to uh, sign her. She's an awesome person as well, which is just cookies on top of the cake, I guess. I don't yeah. know what that's saying. Probably it sprinkles. Sprinkles works. Probably makes more sense. Icing on the cake um, is the actual phrase, but icing on the cake. But uh yeah, I mean that was that was impressive to watch. It was also interesting because I was talking to Mason before we teed off on Sunday. And um I was I was basically being like, yeah, so well not not now on Sunday. Sorry. I saw Mason. I think he came over and was practicing a little bit after his round on Saturday. So going into Sunday, I was talking to Mason. I was like, yeah, so it's like Val going to kind of, you know, play a little bit, you know, safe and like basically make it to where someone has to ch- try to chase her down. Because especially a course like that, like we didn't see outside of Val shooting as hot as she did. We didn't really see any other, you know, I think Kate Mersh might have shot six under, which was a really good round as well. But there wasn't like really low scoring out there for the FPO. So her like shooting even par and someone shooting like eight under is like probably very unlikely to happen. Yeah. Even if she did end up playing bad. Um, But he was like, no, she's just going to play aggressive. She doesn't. She likes playing. (laughs) Like she, she. He was like, no, she's just going to keep going for stuff, which I was like, dang, okay, well, yeah. I mean, you're feeling it, you're feeling it, but yeah, I mean, that was that was an impressive, that was probably one of the more impressive wins. Now, obviously, Kristen's not here, yeah. right? So, so that was, that was, uh, that was, was, but Kristen was at Waco, right? Kristen was at Waco. 
Yep. Yeah. Okay. Kristen. Kristen so, hasn't finished outside the top three this year, which is yeah very I, impressive. Kristen, but obviously, yeah, obviously, Kristen's still the number one player in the world. But I think Val, if you didn't have her already as a top FPO player, you are you definitely you do to. now. You like, have I to. think I think everyone everyone has uh, has been alerted that Val is in the building. Yeah, I think Val and Gannon are are similar in the aspects of they've played disc golf for a long time, even though they're both, I mean, Gannon's younger than Valerie is, but um, they both have like amateur and junior world titles and stuff like that, where even though it's not the same scale of pressure from a fan's perspective, it's a very similar scale of pressure on a player because like am and junior worlds, that is like your entire world there. And so when you're going Uh to those things and you've won multiple of them and then Valerie she went and she just dominated the local FPO scene. So like she and her sister Alexis know how to win in those type of tournaments. So in those type of situations to where like, I feel like when pressure comes up, she's a lot more acclimated to it than some of the players who they get their battle wounds on tour. And it's like their first time with a chance to win might be their first time with a chance to win versus a player like Mm -hmm. Gannon or Valerie, where they've won majors on the amateur level and stuff like that. They've been in close fights. They've been in playoffs. And so they already have some of that experience. And now it's just like on a different stage to a certain extent. So, Oh, for sure. And if I was like, if I was obviously 10, 15 years younger than I was now, like, I think that is definitely the path that you want to go. You want to go on the path of putting yourself in positions to win as much as you possibly can and if you just go straight to the disc golf if you go straight to the pro tour um you're it's it's not gonna happen so yeah um it's not gonna happen at least right off the bat so i think that's obviously the the path for a lot of players and it should be the path for a lot of players is like playing local playing maybe even regional big regional events and like getting used to winning those events and getting yourself in those positions, because obviously it's a little bit of a different ball game, but like you said, you know, when you have those kind of experiences to, to look back on when you get into that spot in a bigger tournament, you're not going to be as like flustered or, you know, deer in the headlights of like, Holy cow, what's going on. So yeah. Yeah. Val's an absolute killer. What I definitely want, I mean, obviously no one was really pushing her this this week. So I I think it's something that we have all been wanting to happen in FPO for some time of where we see multiple FPO players like pushing each other. A lot of times we get like one or two. We're getting closer and closer to where we could have a tournament where there's like there's like four people, five people just all shooting lights out and that tournament's gonna be insane yeah um obviously it doesn't happen in mpo you know past tournaments for example it was literally simon and garrett everyone else was playing for third and fourth but um it's always fun when you get those like that can't wait until that happens more i feel like it's going to i don't know why it hasn't but i feel like it's going to like where people from like chase card like put put a score down where like they have to get chased down and we don't know if it's going to happen or not yeah like it's so rare for that to happen but i I would love for i don't know we're definitely getting close because like i mean what you just said it was simon and garrett you know and the rest of the field was trying to catch them like that sentence a few years ago sounds so foreign 
because it was like they used to not be where week in and week out it was you didn't know who was going to be the top top three players at the tournament. Oh, your guys, your guys' predictions are probably so hard this year. It's way more fun. You guys, yeah, you, you guys you doing can, like the top three. Yeah, you can mix in. You always mix in a you Ricky, Calvin, or Paul, but you always throw in a a Gannon, Simon. You have to throw in like a hot hand, and like you you yeah. aren't a crazy person to throw like to pick Drew Gibson and throw him in there. Like a year or yeah, two ago, it was like you went. Ricky Paul Calvin or Ricky Eagle Calvin or Ricky Eagle Paul and like if you didn't have those three then you, you might you, you might were losing points. Chris yeah you might sprinkle Chris in there yeah. if he was playing the but event. like the past several years like if you didn't have those three you were a crazy person now this year if you had just those three it's like well you're gonna get one and maybe two of the three but you're not getting the top three so and then same yeah same thing with FPO too it's you know? getting like, there more and more yeah Obviously, you have probably Kristen, I would say, in every single one. But like, you wouldn't be you wouldn't be crazy to not have Paige in your top three. You wouldn't be crazy to not have Cat in your top three. Yeah. And a couple years ago, there's no way you're not having those two in the top three every single tournament. Yeah. So it's definitely yeah. getting more exciting. But that wraps it up for this week's show. We'll be back again next Tuesday night, uh, prop around the same time. Might be a little earlier. Uh, we'll have to wait and see what happens next week. But thank you all so much for tuning in. And be sure it'll to be check earlier. out. It I'll will be, be earlier. In, uh, yeah, I'll be in Dallas. I didn't baby. know where you'll be. All right, so it'll be earlier next week. I'm back. He'll be back next in Dallas. Off, off week. Back off in Dallas week. next week, so it'll be a little earlier. But uh, be sure to check out the, the Beaver State Fling Silver Series going on this weekend, and we'll talk to you all next week.